Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 48 and we have Joseph Bookdahl joining the show. Joseph is a prominent author, writer and thinker in the sports betting psychology space. Joseph has written many books and articles on the cognitive side of sports betting and he talks about ideas and principles that help sports bettors understand markets and betting. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Joseph Bookdahl. Today I'm joined by Joseph Bookdahl. Joseph, thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. So Joseph, most people will be aware of some of the books you've written and have probably read them or some of your articles online and, and the area that you're sort of involved in. Do you want to take us through, to begin with, just your background and how you got started in the industry of, of betting? All right, okay, it's, it's quite a long story, actually. Um, I met a character called Patrick Veitch, or Veitch, or Veitch at uh, Cambridge University, and he was a third-year mathematician when I, when I joined the university back in 1989. And he was an intriguing character. He was he was making a lot of money on betting on horses at the time and doing a really good job of failing his math degree, which he, he did manage to do in the end, um, which I guess, I guess it doesn't really matter if you're making thousands every week on horse racing. And I've always loved numbers and I've always loved sport and I was intrigued by what he was doing. And a friend of mine managed his Saturday morning tips line and I used to take, I used to go and place some of his bets and collect some of his winnings now and again. Um, obviously, because it was pre-internet days, and he would be known to all the bookmakers, the local shops there, so obviously couldn't show his face, so he had to get runners to do all that work for him, and I, I did that now and again for him, and I was very intrigued by the whole industry, and always vowed maybe one day to do similar with football or tennis, and so several years later, when I was working um, in the environment, sec- in the environmental industry, um, just one lunch break, I decided to have a look on the internet to see what data there was around. And it kind of all started from there. I was downloading football results and collecting odds from the bookmakers. And it all started from that, really. So take us back to Cambridge in the late 80s or early 90s. What, was, what type of discussions were you having back then? Was it pretty basic in terms of what we talk about and see today and what access to information is possible now and computing power and all that sort of stuff it was i mean i didn't have any discussions it was just a kind of what what, what would you bet on and would you place a, a, a threefold on on liverpool to win the league liverpool to win the fa cup that sort of thing um there was it was it was pretty much pre-computer certainly pre-internet and there was no data that you could get your hands on so it was just kind of just sit in the pub and have a chat about what was worth betting on and, and what you go down to the shop and, and stick your tenor on it was it was nothing serious at all were there any pros other than Patrick and potentially a few others around that you were learning from back then and, and picking up different ideas? 
No, I, no. I mean, he was the only one that I knew that was doing what he was doing. Um, and obviously, he's proven to be the, the, one of the best, if not the best, in the industry. So, um, no, I was not aware of anyone else doing similar. So it was kind of just a, a character that I met and was intrigued by, and then years later tried to try to uh, model what he had done. Not to so, not with so much success, but um, obviously that led me to other things, which was to to set up the websites that actually supplied the the data and then ultimately uh, write the articles and write the books. So what was your aim when you left university? Did you want to bet for a living? Did you want to become a bookmaker? Were you interested in being a an author? What were some of the things that motivated you? No, this this was never going to be a career path. This was always just a hobby. It, it, it was, as I said, I was in the environmental industry for, for 10, 15 years and it was kind of just a hobby that, that I, I pursued and I suppose... After about four, four or five years of trying my hand at uh, betting on football, it, it was kind of breaking even for me, but not not really earning me a living or earning me an extra living or extra income. So I decided one day to post a question on a betting forum as to with regards if I was to make this sort of data that I've got available to me personally, if I made this data available and more publicly, would anyone be prepared to pay for that? And the responses I got led me to set up my first website, footballdata.co.uk. And it was from that that I started to earn a little revenue selling subscriptions to access the data. And then from there, it was it became um, an advertising stream. Once they had some traffic, the bookmakers wanted to start advertising their products, and they would pay a revenue share for customers that you referred to them. So that kind of became the income stream in the end it wasn't so much the betting um for me that made the income but it was referring other customers to to bookmakers that would actually pay me the living i would obviously carry on with betting personally but it wasn't it wasn't on a professional basis because i've never considered myself to be good enough or to or to be able to find enough time to devote to actually finding a, a significant significant enough edge to to make a living out of it how did you learn or go into detail in understanding different modeling statistical methods and systems that you've talked about publicly was that through the university studies or did you have to go out on your own no it was nothing to do with the university no i mean it's i i've pretty much followed or gained all the knowledge that i've got from just reading forums reading other books um studying other articles and then just just thinking about stuff myself and just trying to analyze what works and what doesn't work and then and then just gradually just accumulating knowledge over time and, and formulating my ideas and it's been as I described in my my last my third book it's it's kind of been a long journey to get where I am and I suppose in the early days you were full of confidence thinking that it would be easy to beat the bookmaker and over time you realize that it's not so easy and only the best and the ones that are prepared to work the hardest at it will um, get there in the end and I, I suppose I wasn't one of those but in the meantime I managed to find another avenue which would actually make me an income from this so what do you think led you towards the area that you focused on is it that you were just disappointed in losing was it that it was an area that was largely untouched in terms of the sports betting space do you know what sort of drove you to that direction well the, the what motivated me to actually ask the question about whether anyone would be want, wanting my data in the first place was I decided after a few years I wasn't good enough to develop algorithms that would actually find an advantage so i thought if i just make earn a bit of money selling the data or selling subscription to access the data maybe someone at some point would who's cleverer than i am would come along and 
find some solutions and find some answers, find an edge with which to make a, a regular income and maybe they would share it with me. That was, I suppose, the motivation. Of course, that never happened. But along the way, it, that having the website generated the subscription revenue and then ultimately it generated the advertising revenue as well. So I suppose yeah, the, the motivation was, if I can't do it, maybe someone else can show me the way. Um, so that's kind of how it started, really. What was the, I guess, adoption or engagement like when you started talking about some of these things in a sports betting contest? And I, you know, obviously people would be well aware of the gambler's fallacy or, or Martingale systems and things like that. But you sort of went a bit deeper and went into detail on things like, you know, you talk about wisdom of the crowds, you talk about following the closing line, you talk about staking plans and, and chance versus skill and luck and these type of things. Did it take a while for you to get some active engagement? It, it has. I mean, it's like I say, it's it's been it's been a long journey just figuring out some of these ideas. And I mean, the, a lot of these ideas are not new. They're, they're they're well known amongst academia and so on. But I suppose they're they're less familiar to the um, the world of sports betting. And, and certainly, what I've tried to do is bring them all together and and under one umbrella. Certainly, through through my books and through my articles and my website, I've tried to encourage people just to think a little bit more about what it is they're doing, not not to, I, mean, I suppose my my main concern is to encourage people to try and understand that just because they win a bet doesn't necessarily mean that they had anything to do with it. That's so much of of sports betting is down to, to chance and really the best comparison is poker. You think you most of what happens in poker is is chances, what, what hands you get dealt, what hands the other, your opponent to get dealt and it's only over many hundreds or thousands of, of, of plays you'll actually be able to see any any skill come through and it's it's kind of the same with sports betting it's almost everything that happens is chance and for nearly everyone they're not going to be diligent enough and skillful enough to find it find an edge and so if they see themselves winning a bet it's really just going to be down to pure luck but when you win it's easy to assume that you had something to do with it and so through my my work and my writing I've tried to encourage people to to see that that isn't necessarily the case and to show that it's actually a really hard thing to succeed at and it can be done, but only the few will do it and you have to put in a lot of work to do it. Is there an overarching message in a lot of the, uh, you know, the articles and books you're writing and the topics? Because it, it's kind of daunting to think about it that very few people are going to win. Most of the times when you do win, personally, it's based on no skill of your own necessarily. It's largely luck and chance and... And I've sort of seen what Nate Silver from 538 talks about in terms of poker and what you mentioned about you can mm. play really, really well, but you can still lose and there's someone else better than you. Sure. How has how that sort of... It's certainly not a negative approach. It's more just that it's pretty daunting to think about that it takes so much skill and care and consideration to be uh, at the, the tip of the sword, to put it that way. I mean, I guess sometimes I, I probably... I imagine myself that people think that I, I must be the Grim Reaper. When I when I put out these messages, but it's it's not meant to be like that. It's just meant to be just telling telling people how it is and telling the truth about about what sports betting means and what it involves. And I think it's I think it's 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 the right it's the right approach. And well, I think it, gambling it's really sports betting should largely be considered to be gambling for most people. I know those, and certainly I I started I I chose sports betting as a thing to get into rather than say poker or casino because there always is this hypothetical chance that you can succeed through skill because these were dealing with unknown unknowns as opposed to say a game in a casino where all the all the maths of the of the game are known so it's just all based on chance so 
I suppose that's what what drew me to it. But but ultimately, over time, I've come to realise how hard it is to to even succeed in in something where there is a theoretical chance to to gain an edge. And I just wanted to to give everyone else that message, just to say, well, it can be done, but you're going to have to work damn hard to 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 get there. So, do you have a favourite principle or things you talk about the most in terms of this area? Do you prefer to talk about things like? how difficult it is to find an edge? Do you like talking about some of the uh, gambler's fallacy principles or recency bias? Do you have any preferences? Uh, not really. I, I suppose yeah, I, I'm interested by the psychological biases and particularly how easy it is for people to, to imagine that something is real when in fact it's probably not real and it's probably just happening by chance and how, how easy it is for people to be fooled by that. Um. Also, things like, I mean, for example, I've just released an article on Pinnacle Sports looking at um, the influence of hot hand, the hot hand fallacy in sports betting and how people or teams that may be on winning runs may end up being overbet because people believe in these winning streaks and think, well, if, if, if a team's on a winning streak, they're more likely to carry on winning when, in fact, really, it's just chance that they are, are on such a streak. Um, but if people believe that there's something causal in it, they will they will bet more than they probably should, or there'll be more people that are betting on such a team, and that will drive the price down. So, and of course, by driving the, the price down of one team, it's going to be potentially longer and maybe advantageous for the other team. And so, looking, I was doing some analysis, and I presented that in the most recent article on Pinnacle Sports, and there's a suggestion there that there may be something significant where you could actually make, make a profit. It's, it's not a big profit because it's, it's essentially just a, a system based on a very weak bias. But it's, I find it intriguing that even in a market that's supposedly so efficient, that we can still find these underlying um, inefficiencies or these underlying biases that arise from human psychology. That, I suppose, is the most, I find the most intriguing that, that I, I've discovered in the last few years that, that I like to to um, look at and to analyze. So is that the idea of a team having some sort of momentum, but if it's overplayed in the markets because of the public narrative, that that value on whatever side it would be is it just dissipates? Yeah, it's it's kind of what it's saying is that it's the, the famous the famous hot hand um, article that what's first Amos Fersky and his colleagues published, I think, back in the 1980s on basketball. They were looking at the reality of hot hand streaks in basketball um, free throws, I think it was. And they showed that there were the, it's just a fallacy. There's no such thing as winning streaks. And what people think is, is a winning streak is just all down to pure random chance. And it's the same with teams. Say say you, there might be a team that's won three or four or five or six times in a row. People will start to take note and start thinking there's something real behind what's making that, that team win. That, sometimes there, there may well be. But the, the point is that that... that, that belief in something causal will be overplayed to the extent that if 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 there if people do suspect that, that the team's legitimately on a winning streak they'll start betting too much money or, or there'll be too many people placing wages on that team to the extent that the more money is put down on that team it'll drive the price down so and if one team's price goes down the other teams will, will potentially lengthen and so that's that's a, it's it's a, just an example of how a bias may crop up in a sports betting market just purely arising as a result of flawed human psychology have you investigated the this type of theory on in terms of a professional or just a sports better in general if a sports better is 
winning a number of, of picks in a row or winning a number of horse races in a row and they might there may be some edge that they A have no idea about and they can't decipher or B think they can decipher and may or may not have it correct. In terms of on the betting side, is there anything to is there any sort of research out there on whether or not an individual person can get on a hot streak and that should be maximized? I, I, there is. There was an article that actually um, Pinnacle did, produced a, a story about this research. I forget the two names of the researchers that did it, but they argued for a, a, a hot hand streak in punters' winning records, and they pinned this down to shortening odds. So, for, so the, the idea was that when a, a punter goes on a winning streak, each time he wins, he's then likely to shorten his odds for the next bet, and that's what was accounting for the longer and longer winning streaks. And I did actually do, wrote, wrote, write an article of my own that was that debunked the whole thesis behind this, this paper. Um, other than that, I don't, I haven't come across anything that would suggest there's any, anything like a, a hot hands in um, the sports betting world, certainly in terms of actual betting records. It, it, it would strike me as in, in, well, inconceivable that someone could, could go on winning streaks. I know, I know punters talk about that and certainly tipsters talk about that and they'll use those sorts of things to promote their products and saying this our tipster's been on a on a nine win streak or what have you. But again, these are just if, if you analyze the data, you'll find that it's just it, these are just all random patterns. I've certainly not, not ever seen any anything that leads me to believe that a, a tipster that wins is more likely to carry on winning than than before. They may that's not to say they don't have an advantage, it just means that the, the advantage is not going to grow just because they're winning. What about on an individual horse racing meeting where it's the same track on the same day, largely the same weather, uh, a lot of those variables will stay the same because it's an eight-hour period. What about in that instance if you know, you've know you won the first three races and potentially there's something in your model that's above market expectation? Is that something that could be a possibility or not? It could be, but it would be it would be short term time. I mean, over, over a period of, say, three races or five or six races at a meeting, it would be such so small sample that you you couldn't analyze whether or not there was something causal there or whether it was just random. You'd have to you'd have to have a much more larger sample to be able to to analyze that. And arguably, if there was something causal that was causing someone to to have repeat wins because of some particular the nature of the track or the weather or what have you, other people would be picking up on those cues as well. They'd be overbetting those horses, and that would drive the prices down. So in the long run, you would find that whatever advantage was available would would be dissipated away by by the knowledge that was then out, out that had arrived at the market. So, the idea that winning will breed winning is to me a complete fallacy. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin buy-sell fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join Betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So I want to talk about finding an edge, and I've, I've read a lot of your stuff about this. You know, a lot of people might create their model, create their, for want of a better term, system, on how they're going to bet, and it might include hundreds or thousands of variables. How long do you think it, it takes for you to understand that you have an edge? And obviously, you can backtest your system with historical data and information and then try and understand if it's going to be predictive moving forward, but... In sort of your research and your experience, how long does it actually take before you sort of really know that you're going to have an edge moving forward? 
Oh, it's it's going to depend on the market that you're following. Um, it's it's going to depend on the sport as well. I mean, arguably, it's like asking how long is a piece of string. If if you are talking about wondering whether your your sports betting history could have arisen by chance, then no history will be long enough to be able to tell you whether or not. And by the time you've got to such a length of history, it may be that whatever advantage you really did have and weren't sure that you had has been better way by other people finding out what you were doing anyway. So the whole thing's a fluid thing anyway. So you're, you're, you're never going to fully be able to answer that question. Um, I suppose if you're looking for a bullbuck figure, I, people ask me, I would normally say, you know, certainly many hundreds of, of wages, probably thousands if, 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 if you can, if you can go that long. But of course, people's sports betting careers are not, often not that long if they're not betting that frequently. Of course, there's another way you can look at this, and that's to compare the prices that you bet against the, the, the market closing prices. And arguably, that can be a quicker way of giving you an idea of whether you do have an advantage or whether the information that you bring to the market then subsequently becomes um, common knowledge that then forces the prices down. And you, you happen to be the one that's arriving at the market early to take advantage of that information. That would potentially give you a much quicker idea of whether you are skilled or not but it, again you still have to analyze whether or not you your price is beating the market are, are is happening because of chance and again you still have to use the same sort of statistical techniques to analyze that so it's kind of your back to back to where you started from in, in terms of trying to ask the question or answer the question how long do you think it's going to take before you you think that what you have is a matter of skill and not just a matter of chance but i suppose I suppose the simplest way to answer it is that those that have made a career out of it, well, they know, don't they? Because they, they've they've made a lot of money. And you could still, even those, you could still argue, say, the likes of, say, Warren Buffet or, or Patrick Veach, you might still be able to say, well, they could be many, many standard deviations away from the mean of, 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 a, of a distribution of randomly behaving punters. And it just could be that they're the luckiest two people in the world. It's unlikely, but that could be something you could say. Um, I suppose ultimately you just say, well, if I'm making a living from it, I must be doing something right. And it doesn't really matter whether it's skill or luck. Yeah. And I, I think then we can talk about survivorship bias and yeah, those who, those who win will write history probably. And, yeah. and that's sort that's of another it. angle as well. That That's actually, yeah. And, that, and, and again, that's one of the messages I try and encourage people to take on board is it just, just because someone's won big and won for a long time, it doesn't prove on its own that they've done it through skill and they they may well have done it. The, the statistics will say it's it's likely to be something other than chance, but it never completely proves it beyond beyond absolutely, does it? Because that's the nature of the, of the statistical testing that you're, you're dealing with. So and, and so long as people understand those and, and 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 bring bring to this whole thing an element of modesty and and, and acceptance that that they can't just assume that by turning up and betting and having a few wins that they've got what it takes. If they can understand that, then then they, they can potentially enjoy sports betting and not and not end up in places where they don't want to, which is obviously losing a lot of money and, and potentially losing a livelihood through it, which has always been my, one of my concerns because I've done very well out of the industry encouraging people to 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 um to, to sports bet and so I, it's a way of me trying to encourage or giving giving something back by trying to encourage people to be sensible about the way they sports bet and and um, not to assume that they they can win and and have a career out of it. 
So this idea of wisdom of the crowds for sports betting, is that only meaningful when you have a a high volume market or even just an efficient market where you have a lot of information piling in or does it still apply to, to the smaller markets? No, I mean, it, it, yeah, so you've just you've got it in one. It depends on the size of the market. And I mean, even in a big market, you might argue that there's no such thing as a fully efficient market. And how would you test whether it is, if, if you could, and it's, it's impossible to test. It's kind of a, a, a funny hypothesis. It's not testable, really. Um, but certainly when you look at, when you look at big data, like sort of, for example, football betting odds from Betfair, um, certainly it very much looks like it replicates what you would call an efficient market where the prices for particular uh, teams pretty much match the actual percentage outcomes. In terms, So, for example, say a, a price of evens or prices of evens tend to end up winning about 50% of the time and prices of three to one tend to end up winning about 25% of the time. And so on the face of it, it proves on average the market or a big market like, say, premiership football is fairly efficient. That doesn't necessarily imply that underneath there are hidden inefficiencies like like the business with a hot hand that you might be able to exploit now and again. Or, and then certainly something like the favourite the long, the favorite long shot bias is, is a common one. Um, but, yeah, I would argue that most of the t- most big markets like football and maybe the U.S. sports in America and, and so the markets in China perhaps um, are fairly efficient. Whether or not that's driven by a, a, a dumb crowd just acting together and um, errors cancelling themselves out or whether it's driven by a much smaller percentage of sharp players with the dumb players then following suit is another matter but in terms of outcome in terms of what the market ends up looking like it doesn't really make much difference yeah so that was sort of my next point is wisdom of the crowds quite simply the closing line or are there those outliers you mentioned or individual opinions that have more of an impact on an individual market than they should or proportionally should well the closing line by definition shouldn't should in theory be the most efficient line because it's it's the one that represents the most amount of information that's arrived at the market. Um, certainly my, my studying of the Pinnacle Sports opening prices would suggest they're pretty efficient too. So, which lends credence to the idea that's, that even a, a few smart players can create a fairly efficient um, market if, if they're allowed to. Whether there are any outlier prices, I mean, yeah, it's it's more likely that you're going to get outlier prices the smaller the market. So some of the smaller football leagues and some of the minor sports for sure. And and that, of course, is why stakes are much smaller. You, you certainly can't get the sort of stake sizes that you might want, say, for a premiership football match. And that is because the, the bookmaker is having to take on more risk. They have less information available so they can be less sure whether that market is going to contain prices that are inefficient. So by, by well, another way of managing their liability is just to reduce the, the, the stakes that they will allow. So where is it going to head? Is So let me put this to you. A lot of the betting happens later in the sort of the, the life cycle of the market and closer to the start of the game or the race. You're telling me by the sounds of it that you know it's going to get more and more efficient. The more information we can gather and collect, the more volume, the more wisdom of the crowds goes into it, the better and more efficient the closing line will be ultimately the margins are likely to be smaller. I guess the margin from you know, deviating from the most efficient price 
does that mean that over time more sports bettors or more individuals are just going to win closer to 50% minus the VIG and, and the it's going to be more difficult for professionals out there to make a living? Yeah, I think the more the more people who who join this market, the more difficult it is it, it will become for for anyone to 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 find an advantage. It's simply in one of the articles, certainly in my last book and in one of the articles I wrote for Pinnacle, um, what was it? It's, it's it's the paradox of skill that I described, and it's it's kind of like it's an it's you think of it in terms of, of like an arms race. Um, where one people one person finds an advantage or a group of people find an advantage then other people f- uh, discover that advantage and they start doing the same thing and so that affects the price to the extent where the advantage is then is then exploited away and then maybe someone else finds a new advantage and that works for a while other people's cotton on and they do the same thing and so all the time people are well they're copying each other and bringing newer more and new information to the market that essentially the idea is that the market just becomes more and more efficient and so the more efficient it becomes the harder it becomes even for professionals to to find that advantage because more and more people are doing the same things and so it's, it's what we call what, what has been coined the paradox of skill so even though people are absolutely more skillful at what they're doing because they're all doing the same thing in relative terms um, there is less scope for finding an advantage over other players does that luck versus skill element apply equally to different sports? And and I've read some of your articles about you know soccer. Obviously, the the total goals in a match can be you know zero, one, two, three, four goals. An NBA game, there's going to be two hundred and ten points probably. In tennis, yeah. there's individual points where there's a lot of repetition of the same thing. Someone serves, someone returns, and so on. Is it equally applicable across all sports, or is it vary depending on? The skill versus luck component in individual sport. Well, you're what you're doing. You're conflating two different things. You, yeah, certainly the skill factor within the sports themselves will be will be variable. They'll, they'll, the influence of skill will be much greater in a high higher scoring game like like basketball and tennis. And whereas in a low scoring game like soccer, it's certainly more. And obviously, being a team sport as well, it's. It's much more subject to chance, but that's something quite different to actually the, the market on which, that you're using to bet on the sport. So, arguably, they're two separate things. So, when you talk about uh, skill in football, that's not the same thing as skill in football betting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and so, what we're actually dealing with here is a market where there are many, many betters that are coming to to actually bet against each other. In effect, I know the bookmakers facil- facilitating the action, but to all intents and purposes. Um, depending on how much the bookmaker wants to be part of the action, it's really just players playing against other players. And the more players you have and the more that they're doing the same things and the more information that they bring to the market, the more they cancel themselves out. I mean, think, think for example, I think I may have described it in my book. Imagine that I, I was to turn up and play Roger Federer at tennis. I would, it, would be, it would not be a matter of chance at all. It would be skill every time. He would win every point and I would lose without a doubt. But let's suppose that over 20 years I could gradually learn to acquire his skills and get better and better and better and better and better until I got to the point where I was as good as he was. Um, then if we were to play a tennis match, the outcome would be largely a subject, subject to chance in terms of the, 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 what was going on in the individual um, points play because our skill levels would be pretty much the same. And so... The, the, the actual differences in, in outcomes would be just 
just little minor things that would largely be random and, and the influence of chance. And it's the same it's the same in the sports betting market. If if everyone's doing the same thing and cancelling themselves out, then what you've got left behind, the variance that's left behind is just simply it's explained by random noise and nothing to do with skill at all. And that's that's the issue. The more the more people who start betting and the more they do the same things and the more they, they acquire the same information and, and apply the same rating systems or similar rating systems, the more difficult it will become. And so that's why it's, it's sports betting is kind of should be seen as an arms race. Is that the more that will do it, the harder you'll have to work to keep maintaining your advantage. So take us through this idea of relative performance versus the actual outcome. And I've I've read some of the the work you've done on this. Is it is it fair to say that in sports like baseball and and soccer, where there's low scoring on the scoreboard, that it's not necessarily about the final score. It's more about what actually happened throughout the game, and that should be analysed more deeply? Yeah, I mean, I suppose in terms of in terms of the actual play, absolutely, yeah. You, you, it's, you have to take into account consideration the, the influence of chance for, for low-scoring games like that. But in terms of the actual sports betting market, I'm not sure that, that there's, it would it, there'd be much difference in terms of prediction of the outcome of a soccer match than say on uh, a basketball match because the the odds reflect the different nature of of skill within the, each of those games to the extent that you will obviously get very very hot favorites in things like basketball um, and less so in something like NHL hockey ice hockey or, or baseball where the odds are, are much more evenly spread amongst teams because because there's probably a greater element of chance within Within the within the game and within the outcomes. So, can you take us through staking plan approaches? And and most people that listen to this will understand, obviously, Kelly and having a proportional staking plan or a fixed staking plan or some other modification of that. What has your research gone into about? Is there an optimal one? Is it depending on your individual circumstances? How would you approach a staking plan for a, a new professional better, for example? I think this you can't beat just a simple level stakes plan. It's just simple. It defines or it, it easily reflects your advantage if you have an advantage over the over the odds, and it's just easy to understand. I know obviously some people would argue against it in in that it's you're risking too much for high odds propositions. Um, the flip side is that if you proportionally scale your stakes smaller to to bet on the on the longer odds you're going to win less when those things happen and if that's the case why not just drop the longer odds in the first place if you don't want to win as much for those longer odds um the downside of course to to, to flat flat staking or level staking is that if you do have a, a long losing streak that could potentially wipe you out um so in in its place you would consider something like proportional staking um, where you've been, uh, you just wage a percentage of your existing bankroll. The downside to that is after losing runs, it will take longer for you to recover back to profitability. So the, it swings and roundabouts with these things. What I would always say is don't ever chase your losses. So never follow things like pyramid schemes or martingale schemes. They are a recipe for disaster. What about multiple banks with different approaches? Do you have any thoughts on that? You could apply that, I suppose. I mean, I haven't thought too much about that myself, but I suppose if you were betting on different sports, you could you could potentially um, have different 
banks for different sports or different leagues, I guess. It might be a way of managing risk strategies. Um, but ultimately, you, it would be essentially the same thing as just reducing your percentage stake size for the, for the single bank that you used. The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So I want to talk a little bit about tipsters. And you've done a lot of work in this space, and I've seen uh, some of the analysis. One of them was basically that if you took a, a larger sample size of tipsters and you put it through you know, a distribution, it came out as largely a normal distribution and that yeah. it was basically as good as anyone flipping a coin or just random selections. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, that's basically that in a nutshell. Most, most, Almost all tipsters and almost all punters may think they know what they're doing or may think that they are able to forecast to the extent that they can find an advantage. Sadly, when you analyze them as a group, it suggests that almost all of them are are suffering an illusion of causation. They are they're not doing anything of the sort. They're just the ones that are winning are doing it through luck. The ones that are losing are being are unlucky, and there's nothing more to it than that. That's not to say there aren't a, few, a, a tiny handful that are skilled, but because the, the the distribution contains so many players or so many tipsters, most of whom are completely skilled. I wouldn't say skillless because obviously it takes some skill to forecast um, an outcome of, a, of a, say, a, a tennis match or a football match. But if we're talking in relative terms, because they're all cancelling each other out, what you're left with is just is random noise. There may be one or two within that distribution that are more skilled, but the thing is they're so well hidden behind the, the majority who, who aren't relatively skilled, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to, to spot them. One way I would always say is have a look at their closing prices and compare them to the prices that they advise. If they are consistently advising bets that then close at shorter prices, that would be an indication that they are bringing information to the market that's moving the market actively. So if you were able to do this analysis for those who recognize themselves as professional bettors, let's say, and we removed... I guess the idea of survivorship bias and not just you know going through the data of those that have been winning. Do you think mm-hmm. the distribution would be the same? It'd be an interesting, it'd be an interesting um, experiment, wouldn't it? But again, I would probably what I'd want to do, I suppose, if you were to if you were to ask people to select themselves for analysis and say if they claim to be a winning professional and provided evidence that they were a winning professional. What we could then do is do a, a before-after analysis. So compare what they've done before and then look at what they would then do afterwards. And if we see regression to the mean, you would then say that what happened before was just chance. And, and for example, I mean, when I used to verify tipsters through my, my old service sports tipsters, um, I used to allow those services to bring previous records to my website, I would publish those records. I'd, I'd say that this this is unverified work, or it's usually unverified yep. tips, and I would then be able to compare what they brought to me with then what they did while they verified through me. And I think in my second book on the sports tipping industry, I quoted a figure of I think it was about uh, twenty four thousand tips from the hundred and twenty tipsters that came to me with a with a pre existing record. 
they on, in aggregate they had about a 17% profit over turnover and then the 90,000 or so tips that they 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 submitted to me thereafter they collectively showed i think it was an advantage of about 0.5% or 0.4% which is almost complete regression to the mean um, which which for for those that aren't aware of the term is essentially what you're dealing with is is things that just revert to type it's just it's just chance that that they that they were lucky before and the reason they came to me with a record that was profitable um, was because they'd been lucky and they came to me because they'd been winning not because they were skilled but because they'd been winning and the ones that hadn't been winning never asked me to verify because they either gave up or they weren't interested in verifying yeah, interesting do you think that previous unverified information might have been potentially incorrect or had been sort of they no. I always took the view that almost always it, it, these were genuine tips. I, I think there were very few people that were that I came across that were 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 scamming or trying to scam. I mean, there were there were those, and there are obviously more Indian in industry than that, that came to me. But it would be seem rather absurd for someone to actually want to verify their work um, whilst trying to cheat. So I always took the view that those tipsters that actually brought pre-existing records were were genuine records. But the reason that they were so profitable was because of survivorship mice. They came to me precisely because they were profitable. The ones that hadn't been profitable just chose not to come to me. So they, they were no longer seen. They weren't public. Okay. What about saying they got 11 to 1 about a 9 to 1 chance or a 10 to 1 chance, those type of things? Uh, what do you mean? So if they're saying that, you know, I this is my selection at, at 10 to 1 I with the odds that I got and then, you know, the marketplace, the, the odds never drifted further than 9 to 1 or it might have been 10 to 1 for 30 seconds. Okay, so what do you mean? Are you talking about whether the the, the market shortens from from having give, them giving the information? Is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, basically the actual price that you know a reasonable person who received that information can they get ten to one, or is it actually a nine to one or an eight to one opportunity? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Okay, so what you're saying is that the the prices were never adva- available. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly for successful tipsters, it's always a major problem. Um, if they are genuinely an advantage player or an advantage tipster, the moment they put that information out, that price is going to is going to shorten, and pretty much all of their customers are going to be able to un, uh, unable to exploit it. I suppose that some of the the the, the, the more scrupulous tipsters, um, they will. They will they will put out or they will verify prices that are post shortening. So they will put out a price to their customers, many of whom won't be able to get it. And then for the purposes of verification and proving what they they do, they will then they will then verify or or proof a price after the shortening. And just but by the mere act of shortening is enough to demonstrate that there's there's a good chance that this tipster is an advantage is an advantage player. Um, it's, it's, it's. I suppose it's another question as to whether or not they should be should be tipping to the extent that they are. I mean, say they've got three hundred customers and only three of them can get the price. You may well then ask the question: Is that really fair? Should they be charging so much money when almost none of their players can get the the prices advised? I I suppose I'm now of the view that uh, 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 the most successful tipster arrangement would be say between a genuinely skilled sports forecaster and a single customer to the extent that they would be the customer would be prepared to pay thousands or tens of thousands of dollars or euro or whatever the currency is for that information knowing and having the guarantee that that price would be the price that they got 
Yeah, that so, makes sense. So that, I mean, that's that's you're not going to get that in the real world. <laughs> no, certainly not. So, what advice do you have for the regular punter who may be interested in a tipping service, or if they were to, is it a tread with caution type advice? Yeah. Well, always do your due diligence. Always check out the. I mean, if it's an online service, check out the domain name. See if if the, the history that they publish predates the domain name. Ask questions. Certainly, don't ever go buy tips from a tipster that isn't independently verified. Have a look at their their prices and see whether or not the closing prices, if you can find them, are are shorter than the ones that they advised. That sort of thing. Just do 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 all the due diligence. I, I mean, I put together quite a lot of points in my in my second book on the truth about sports tipsters. So it, it's kind of common sense, really. If you don't want to lose money, um, do the things that you 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 know that you should be doing which is just do do the due diligence and check out who it is and whether what they, is what they say it is is true and whether it can be backed up and and never never buy tips from someone who isn't independently verified alternative asset classes and and people talk about sports betting as potentially being one of those or actually being one of those now there's a couple of sort of global hedge funds or sports betting funds available do you see it as a a useful a potentially useful investment for someone looking at an alternative asset class or do you think based on a lot of what we've said in the last sort of 40 minutes that it's going to be a a difficult marketplace to to win long term yeah i if you were to ask me personally i would be very reluctant to ever invest money into a sports betting fund um and the simple reason is the advantage is never with you because of the the commission that the the bookmakers charge. It's 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 the, the costs that you have to pay to play in this market are so severe. Even with the the, the 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 tightest margins, it's still significant enough to make it. It's very very difficult to to gain an advantage. Why so few people can do it? And so it's you, you're always you're always trying to trying to run uphill with sports betting. Whereas say if you were investing in the financial market, it's always more like running downhill. You you kind of got You've got the global capitalist industry on your side, and you're just running with it all the time. And even after costs, it's not—it's—it's it's not difficult. Even if you're just tossing coins, it's not that difficult to make a profit over if you—if you do a buy and hold strategy. But with sports betting, it's kind of working the other way. You're always running uphill, and it's much harder to beat. Potentially, if you can beat it, it can be much more profitable. And of course, for, for many, depending on what country you reside in, it can be tax-free as well. Um, but I don't want to tell the story that this is an easy nut to crack. It, it's not. And, and the reason it's not is because it, it, the, the bookmakers have such an advantage in terms of the charges that they impose on people that want to play. So I would say if you're going to invest in such a thing, again, make sure you do your due diligence behind behind who you're investing in and absolutely assume that you may not get back what you 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 put in, and that that never would that be more true than it would be for sports betting. I mean, it, they they say that for investing in the financial market, it's even more so for putting any money into a sports betting fund. Absolutely, I don't think I would ever do it. I might be persuaded, depending on not whether I found something that I could I could generally put trust in. I suppose my view is partly clouded by knowing of a, an instance of a an alleged fund that ended up collapsing. It was never clear why it, it failed. It was probably the owner of the fund was doing excessive speculation and ended up chasing losses. He never revealed why it collapsed, and he's still supposedly paying back customers who'd lost a lot of money. 
Um, whether that's true or not remains to be seen. Um, so I suppose my judgments are a bit clouded by those sorts of stories. Um, but I would always be reluctant. And, and as for making a career out of sports betting, I would, again, urge people to think long and hard about whether they've got what it takes. It, it's a full-time job and more and more so. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. So don't just assume that because you win your first bet, you've got what it takes. Joseph, I really appreciate your time. Before I let you go, where can people find you on Twitter and I guess uh, some of your articles and books? Well, my hand, my Twitter handle is 12expert. So it's 12XPERT. So it's expert without the X. Sorry, without the E, before the X. Um, and my primary website is Football Data, if you're interested in football. There's also Tennis Data. And my recent book is available on Amazon and Google, and it's called Squares and Sharps, Suckers and Sharks, the Science, Psychology and Philosophy of Gambling. Yeah, I can certainly endorse that as a very good read for those out there. Joseph, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jake. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly.